Hey everybody, it's John. Welcome back. I, you know, I don't think I spent enough time talking about the business side of this podcast. It just is by way of introduction. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We are a weekly podcast that focuses on telling the stories of great artists that don't get told as often. Maybe they had one hit. Maybe they flirted with fame. Maybe their brush with fame didn't last very long. Maybe they had successful side projects that you probably don't know as much about. Maybe you might hear some music with these guests, and I encourage you to go back into our archives. We've done 31 episodes now. You might recognize some of the music, you might not. You may get turned on to something you don't already know. But that's the point, is to tell the stories that don't get told. And this week is no different. Uh, this week we are talking to Dig Wayne, who was the lead singer of an incredible kind of alternative soul band in Britain in the early 80s called Joe Boxers. Think Dexie's Midnight Runners. It's sort of that similar vibe. They had one hit in the States in 1983 with Just Got Lucky, which reached number 36 in the charts. They had other hits in the UK, but that's all it was in the States. In fact, that song sort of re-emerged about 10 years ago when it was featured on the 40-Year-Old Virgin soundtrack. What's really interesting, though, about Dig, he's a black guy that grew up in a small town in Ohio in the 60s and 70s and was so touched and moved by rockabilly music, of all things, that it took him to New York and then on to London. And now he's an acting coach in LA, which is really fascinating. He's done some acting himself as well. But not your typical story, right? And we have a great conversation here where we, we spent a lot of time just talking about the music that, that mattered to us, that changed our lives. Not just artists and songs, but sometimes even moments within songs. They just kind of blew our minds and expanded our minds. This is a really great conversation. I'm, I hope you like it as much as I did. He called me from his home in L.A. Well, all right. So, Dick, I always kick these things off with kind of an explanation of how I discovered the band that I'm talking to. And you guys have a very specific memory for me, and I, I hope this makes sense if I describe it. So I remember as a kid seeing the Just Got Lucky video when I would have been 10 years old, okay? Yeah. And okay. for whatever reason, the imagery of that video stuck with me for years and years and years. And I couldn't even have told you what the song was, who the band was. I had a very distinct memory of there being at least one black guy in there and so as yeah. I got older and more sophisticated with music, I assumed maybe that I had seen something by the specials because that right. was something I could attribute it to. Right. It wasn't like Just Got Lucky is you know perpetually played over and over and over again. It is sort of now, but it went away for a long time, you know? That's right, it did, yes. But what's interesting about that is that any time I think of England or the UK, that video pops into my mind. And I... Kind of like if you were to smell something, like you smell, I don't know, a flower. You smell honeysuckle, and it reminds you of summer at your grandparents' house when you were nine years old or something like that. This right. sense memory that never went away. I even lived in England for a little while in 1991, and so it's been very close to me, and I love all the music there and everything. But So that video, without even knowing what the song was or who the band was, just an image of you with your floppy hat and your layered clothing and your suspenders and the shoes and, and the look and the kind of gray drab skies and the brown, you know, brick buildings and stuff like that. 
that video represented to me what England must look and feel like for 20 years, probably more. So then I'm watching VH1 Classic about 10 years ago, and Uh the video comes on, and it's a revelation because it's like I've had an image of this thing in my mind for 20 years, not being able to know where it came from or what it even was. I just had it stored back there. And I thought about mm-hmm. it often. And so I heard it, and then literally within days saw 40-Year-Old Virgin and her just got lucky on the soundtrack a couple of times, and right. it, it kind of warmed my heart. So anyway, that was a long way of saying you, for somehow, some way, burned an image in my mind that I couldn't even have put a name to for 22 years that stuck with me oh. for whatever reason. But anyway... I don't know if that even well, means that I, I, let me let me say that that I think that's terrific because that's what you set out to do as an artist. Yeah. That's what you set out to do. And rarely do you have someone come to you that many years later and tell you that. Right. You know, but you hope right. there are people out there who have that kind of an experience, either like yours, where you didn't know what it was but it was still there, mm-hmm. or you know exactly what it was and it's still right. there. You know? Yeah. Either way, it's, it's really great to hear that because it kind of confirms that, you know, we were a success. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I know. Isn't that interesting? You're a rock star in England in 1983, and I'm a little 10-year-old boy in Salt Lake City, Utah. And yeah. a picture of you burns in my brain for 22 years that I can't yeah. get out of my head, and I don't even know where it came from. I think that's well, that interesting, a- too. Yeah, that speaks to the power of MTV at the time too, you know, sure and all does. that stuff yeah. that happened. Because you know, before that, it was it was it was a sound that stuck in your mind, not a picture, mm-hmm. a sound. Mm-hmm. You know, I have pictures in my mind or sounds in my mind. You know, if I hear if I hear the Temptations on the radio or the Four Tops on the radio or or even Alice Cooper, you know, a little bit uh-huh. later on the radio, I go back to I hear Alice Cooper. I, I'll tell you a funny story. I went to a party the other night. I went to a party the other night, and I met this guy, and he was, uh, I said, so what are you doing? We were both waiting for the bathroom. We was in a big house, this rich mm-hmm. guy. I knew this rich guy. He had a big house. He had a bunch of bathrooms, and all the bathrooms were full. Me and this guy are waiting for the bathroom. He said, I'm waiting for that one over there. I said, well, I'm waiting for this one around the corner. We started talking. He looked like a pop star, like a kind of uh-huh. older pop star from a, a time gone by. But, so I said, so, so what brings you to the party? And he tells me that he had a friend who knew the guy who was having a party. I said, oh, I said, so what do you do? He said, I'm a drummer. I said, oh, really? I said, who do you play for? He said, the Hollywood Vampires. I said, you know who that is? Really? Yeah, you know who the Hollywood Vampires are? I do. Alice Cooper <laughs> is like the head of the super group. Yeah, with Johnny Depp, right? Yeah, and Joe Johnny Perry Depp. and a few others. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's crazy, you know. So he says, I can be very careful. I get excited when I start telling stories and all these ideas come to my mind. And and then I lose my my point, but I I make another point. Then I think later, later, an hour later, I'm in the car and go, I didn't finish that point, but I made another point, so I guess that's cool. I don't have to call back and kind of, you know, clear it up. Oh, I know what you mean. That's well So he says, I said, he said he played for the Hollywood Vampires. I said, wow. I said, so, uh, so. And I said, Alice Cooper. I said, you must be pretty old now. So we're talking about how old Alice Cooper is. He goes, yeah. And he goes, yeah. I, I got two stories to tell you. Let me, let, me, let me get this straight. One of them has to do with what he told Alice Cooper, and another one okay. has to do with Alice Cooper and my experience with Alice Cooper. Oh, wow. The first one oh, was, wow. I said, he said, listen, he goes, I, when I was, I think he said when he was 10, or maybe even younger, he said he dressed as Alice Cooper for Halloween. Oh, my gosh. Right? 
because the guy was yeah. pretty old. He was, he was an older guy. He was well into his 40s, you know. He was right. young for Alex to be in Alex. He wasn't Alex Cooper's generation. He was a young guy compared to those guys. He said right. he dressed as Alex Cooper for Halloween. I said, oh, that's great. I said, did you tell Alex Cooper that? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, Alex Cooper thought that was great. I said, I bet he did. So then I tell him a story, and I said, I remember so well being a kid in Ohio, in Cambridge, Ohio, a little town in, in, in southeastern Ohio. And uh-huh. at night, maybe you experienced this, at night, in those days, you, I don't, I'm not even sure if AM, FM radio was around then. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. If it was, mm-hmm. it wasn't. there wasn't a lot of FM stations. Anyway, I remember listening. At nighttime, you could get stations that were further away on AM. And at, at night, I could get a Chicago station that I couldn't get during the daytime. And I'll never oh, wow. forget, my parents would tell me to go to bed, go to sleep, and I had a little transistor radio. And I'd lay uh-huh. in bed, under the covers, listening to the transistor radio. And at night, I could get Chicago, WPLS, I think it was, different, different Chicago stations. And I heard, I heard 18 on the radio. Never forget that. Hearing just the intro every every this day. Like that. You know what I'm saying? Like what? What is? I I probably can't swear, can I? Can I say what the fuck? You can do whatever you want. Sure, people swear all the time. I say what the fuck is that? Right. I had never heard anything like that before. It was so aggressive and so you know it was different. You know I knew rock and roll the 50s and you know I was into soul music I knew that I was sure. into rock and roll but you know but I never heard that and it was like wow and then the, the lyrics you know lines form on my face and hands it was like what uh-huh. is this and then they said it was Alex so in those days they would play a record and they would tell you who it was uh-huh. you know uh-huh. these days they tell you five you hear a record on the radio on FM radio oh, yeah. they play, you hear a record song you love it and you never know who it is because you're not listening to the radio for five yeah. more songs or something know. you know it's so, so true yeah, so he said, that, well, there we go with Alice Cooper in 18. I'm like, Alice Cooper? Alice? <laughs> it was like, it really <laughs> confused me. I was like, what the fuck is going on, Alice? That was, that yeah. was Alice? Anyway. So, wow. So it was one of those moments, like you're saying, you know, that and that stuck with me. Yeah. And I'll never forget that. And, and I, I know what you mean. And, and years later, when I moved to New York City and I was working at Trice and Vaudeville on St. Mark's Place, which was always a dream from the time I knew about New York and wanted to go to New York City. I was growing up and I was buying Rock Scene magazine, uh-huh. reading about the New York dolls and all this stuff. And oh, Trice man. and Vaudeville had advertisements in there for, you know, black skinny jeans and all. They didn't call them skinny jeans, then just black jeans. Sure. And I got a job there, you know, and I used to work in Trice and Vaudeville. I had my rockabilly band in New York City. All my dreams were coming true. And Alice Cooper would come into the store. You know? Really? And he, yeah, and he came to the store one day, and I told him that story. And, you know, and he just, he said, really, that's really great, man. 
I remember he had these. He had arms like Popeye. His arms were really skinny at the top, like his uh-huh. bicep area was very skinny. But his yeah. his his, his uh, forearm was really kind of fat and muscular. He had arms. I mean, he had these Popeye arms. It was very wow. strange. But you know, so I know what you mean. These things. Yeah, they, you, you got to tell him. Moments. I have a lot of moments like that too. I'm saying oh, kind sure of with the Ramones with, when the Ramones came out. You know, and some some friend went to New York and came back with the Ramones album. And we put it on my record player, and I was like, "What the fuck is that?" You know? Yeah. Yeah. But what is that? You know, Sex Pistols, all those things like that. You know, just stick with wow. So I, I want to ask you about that, but I'm going to tell you a story similar to your Alice story. So, I um, one of my favorite artists to this day, top probably number one, is David Bowie, and yeah. uh, you may even have uh, an interaction with him or something to share. But so I had a similar. You and 18 reminds me of me and my David Bowie story. I was. 10 years old again, around the same time, and Let's Dance is a big hit on the radio, and I'm too young to know anything before Let's Dance. So to me, he's brand new, even though right. other people think he, by this point he's a sellout. So sure. I'm hearing Let's Dance, and I love this song, and I remember very distinctly, I was, remember when you were on, air, when you were on airplanes and you would put those big plastic headphones on and you'd yeah. plug them into your seat and the, the back of the magazine had like, 20 songs that would play on a loop and they'd tell you what they right. are. Well, one of them was Let's Dance, and I'm on an airplane. And I still, to this day, it changed my life because I, I'd heard the song many times, but listening to it in that moment on the plane, that part where he sings Tremble like a flower, and he kind of, his voice sort of cracks. thinking you're allowed to do that you can be you can be a singer on the radio and and sound like that i didn't know you could do that i thought you had to sound you know professional and and pretty i had you can just toss it away and let your voice creak and crack like that out of nowhere it it blew my mind so much that i've been eternally fascinated with david bowie ever since because to me he got away with something so huge and by just that one little inflection in his voice on that right. pop song. Anyway. Right. Yeah. So, okay, so going back to you. <laughs> now, I don't know. You, you'll you have to tell me because I'm not familiar with Cambridge, Ohio in the yeah. 60s and 70s. You, There couldn't have been very many other young black kids as obsessed with rock and rockabilly and punk. I mean, 
as you were. Am I right? No. Or okay, no, so I was we- I was the only one. I was the only black kid. Man, all my black friends thought I was very very weird. You yeah, know, thought it was very weird, and I got accused of being like the whitest the whitest black kid in town and sure. all that kind of stuff. You know, it was a small town. I didn't care because what I and I'll tell you why because. Because I grew up listening to rhythm and blues. My mother always had, she played, you know, she had a, I, I mean, I still, I have her records now, you know, her mm. 45 collection. I have nice. a lot of them right now. And, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, B.B. King's 45s, um, um, Jackie Wilson. Uh, sure. What else she's got there? She's got, oh, God, there's something in particular. Uh, Jimmy Witherspoon, Ray Ruby Charles. Baby. Yeah, oh yeah, that's right. That's when I couldn't think of a lot of Ray Charles. You know, yeah, nighttime yeah. is the right time. I'll never forget sure. when I saw the movie Ray, and they're playing they're playing something like the nighttime is the right time, and some of these Ray Charles records that weren't big hits in the you know in, in the in the big scheme of things, but in the black community they were huge, mm-hmm. and they're playing those those songs in the movie, and I remember thinking to myself. My sister, I, she had the same experience. I'm an older sister. It was like, I thought we were the only people listening to that. How can, <laughs> how can they be playing these songs? This is the soundtrack of my childhood. They, they're not right. allowed to play these songs in a Hollywood movie. How did they discover these songs? And, you know, and that movie was not that long ago, and I still had no. that feeling. I knew how yeah. absurd it was, but I had that feeling of like, they've kind of, this is like, this is sacred stuff that they're using yes. in, in a movie, and they shouldn't be doing that. You know? Yes. It's kind of oh. silly, but. That shows you how much that meant to you. So, totally. You know, I grew up listening to that. And the, the, yeah. oh, the one that's so funny because the one record that my mother had that was the, kind of the odd one out that seemed to make the biggest impression ultimately was, was a Bebop Alula. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's, I read that somewhere. That's shocking to me. Yeah, she had that on a single on a cat. On, I can see it. I think I still have it. She had a, several Gene Vincent singles. That was the one. She had a lot of loving. I think a yeah. lot of loving was the flip side. But anyway, you know, Bebop Alula. And, and that's sister, the one I, that burned in your brain. That's the one that that's really the one. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you what. It's similar to what your David Bowie thing, because there uh-huh. is that bit in there where he goes, uh, uh, she's, you know, she's the one in the red blue jeans. She's the one in the She's the one that walks around the floor. And he goes, <laughs> she's the one in the <laughs> Like that. It was like, She's the woman that I know. She's the woman that loves me so. Say, she's my baby, 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 She's the woman with the flying feet. She's the one that walks around the store. She's the one that gives a How can you do like you said the yeah. How can you yeah. do that on a record? Are you allowed right. to do that? That is yes. so weird. We used to we thought it was very funny. 
we uh-huh. didn't think it was cool. We just thought it was really funny, my sister and yeah. I. But ultimately, you know, that Bebop Aluna stuck in my mind, and it's just yeah. like, wow. So when I got accused of this, you know, my black friend said, you know, I wasn't black enough. I thought I didn't care because I thought I, I know black music. I know black yeah. music. I was also sure. listening to The Temptations at the same time and listening to, you know, the, the Motown sound. I was aware of all that stuff. So, you know, but I, I felt like I had something else going on. You know, I was listening to Led Zeppelin too. you know. I was listening to, yeah. you know, every, all this stuff as as well as, you know, top 40 radio and, and black, That's you know, soul music. So, yeah, So, but I was the only one. I definitely was yeah. the only one. I don't think I've ever met a black kid. It's so, it's so, so funny since Joe Boxers and since – um, Buzz and the Flyers, my rockabilly band. Yeah, I've I've gotten you know I've I've had people write me letters or something you know get in contact and uh-huh. it's been, I've had quite a few black guys tell me you know man you know when I saw so and so when I saw Buzz and the Flyers when I saw Bill Boxers and I saw you know it was a black guy doing that you know uh-huh. they, they said it really inspired them because they were like because they felt that way but they they had no kind of role right. model. Right. You know, it was okay, and it was cool that you could do that, and it would be cool, and you could yeah. actually be successful doing that, and be the only black guy. That was the great thing about the specials and those sure. star bands in England, because right. they were in England. They were in England. Yeah. It was different, you know. In America, you didn't see that as much, you know. The eventually had to be in the blow. Totally so, Yeah, you know. But yeah. ultimately, it was it was it was you know you were the the oddity. I was the oddity. You were, and in both bands, you're the only black guy. At least the specials have two or three of them. You're the only one that I can see it anyway. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and so yeah, you stick out as well as a star too. I mean, they're both big bands, especially. So I'm curious, you know, the Joe Boxers. What were those times like? I mean, what motor, What made a guy a little guy from? From Cambridge, Ohio, think I got to get myself to London. I mean, well, the only, <laughs> there yeah. can't be that many that go to do the, what you did, you know. Well, when I did it, I, I you know, I'll tell you the, the sequence of events was, you know, first of all, like I said, I moved to New York City, and yeah, being in right. Ohio, I, I, I thought as soon as I knew what New York City was, and I wanted to go to New York City. So once I got to New York City, I had a band in. I moved to Columbus, Ohio, which was a, you know, which is a city. And I had a band in Columbus, Ohio, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't satisfying me. And I thought, this is just something for me to do, to start learning how to do this, you know. Because right. when I was a kid, I played the drums, you know, and I had some bands when I was in high yep. school. And I was the singer playing the drums, which was always kind of a weird thing, you know, to be the singer and, and playing the drums at the same time. Eventually, I thought, I started thinking about it, and I started seeing, like, you know, well, the Rolling Stones and different groups, you know, the, the lead singer is the one all the girls like, and he's the one yep. up front. Yep. So I, I thought about that, and I thought, I got to find another kid to play the drums so I can just sing. Mm-hmm. So I did that. I found a kid to play the drums. And so one thing led to another. And so uh, I had an opportunity to go to New York. I, I had some friends from Ohio who went to New York and they came back and said, yeah, you got to come. You got to come. We're going to move. And they eventually moved there. They had an apartment on the Lower East Side. They, said, they told me, they said, if you want to come, come and start sleep on our sofa. And, you know, mm-hmm. you, just, you have to come. That makes all the so difference. I, I, yeah. Sorry, what did you say? And well, it makes all the difference, having people you know and a place you can crash. Exactly. That, that leap, that huge leap, feels a lot smaller when you've exactly. got some place to land. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I did. I went and I stayed on their sofa and, I, you know, this and that. And like I said, I finally got a job. I got a job at Trash and Bod. But once I got a job, then I thought I can get an apartment. So I got an apartment, I had a job. And then I said about to start a band, you know, start a rockabilly band is what I wanted to do. And it turns out I, 
I could. It's so funny. I was in New York City. I thought I'd find the greatest guys, the perfect everything I wanted. I couldn't find the, the guitar player I wanted. I just couldn't find really? the guy. Really, in New York? I, Interesting. I couldn't find. I couldn't find a guy because may I put ads in the Village Voice and everything uh-huh. mainly because because all the guys because this was 1978. You know, the, the end wow. of 1978, beginning of 1979, and uh, yeah, you know, the, everyone was a punk. Yeah, you know? true. Most True. people were punk. They were playing like, they didn't understand like picking it, and they hadn't, they, right. they had no kind of, they didn't have that sensitivity for rockabilly yeah. musicality, you know? right? Yeah, and it was like, well, okay. And so I thought of a friend of mine who was in back in Columbus, who was a great guitar player. I never played with him, but I knew him, and we talked about music all the time. And we, used to, I used to sit around, talk about music, listen to music, and he played mm-hmm. guitar. He used to sit around on the sofa and play guitar all day. And I go over to his apartment, and we'd hang out and talk about music and listen to music. And he tur- he turned me on to jazz, and we and wow. Captain Beefheart. And we used to sit around oh, and listen to Captain Beefheart and Charlie Parker. Wow, <laughs> which wow, is, which is such a weird that, combination. Those are the extremes. Yeah, I know. But That's it's going but out it's, there. But, but as time goes by, it doesn't seem that they don't seem that different. If you no, listen to a no. Charlie Parker record mm-hmm. and you listen to a Captain Beefheart record. They have the same kind of chaos, the same kind yeah. of abandon. Well so, said. So it, you know, so it made sense yep, eventually. Exactly right. So it, yep. Yeah, so the weird thing was I got to New York. I couldn't find anybody, so I contacted him. I said, listen, man, I said, you, you need to come to New York, and we need to start a rockabilly band. And he said, okay. You know, he's young like that. He said, he said okay. And so he did. And by then I had an apartment wow. in Brooklyn, right. downtown Brooklyn. He came. Uh-huh. And we sat around. We started listening to Rockabilly records. We started playing. He started playing some Rockabilly records. I started, you know, we started doing covers off of records uh-huh. that we're listening to. Uh, uh-huh. You know, he had a great old acoustic guitar that belonged to his dad. He brought that with him, and he had an electric guitar. And he taught me a few chords on the acoustic, and that's what we did every day. When I wasn't at Trash uh-huh. and Vaudeville working in retail, I'd come home and we'd stay up all night uh-huh. just playing Rockabilly songs, learning Rockabilly songs. Uh-huh. Eventually, we put an ad in for a drummer. We weren't interested in a bass player for some reason. I think we really? liked the cramps. We liked the cramps. We thought, do we need a bass player? I, I don't okay. know. Yeah. So we got a drummer, this kid named Rock Roll, and who was amazing. He looked like uh-huh. he looked like uh, he looked like John Travolta from uh, Saturday Night Fever, Tony <laughs> Manero. You know, yeah. he was from he was from Vincenhurst, uh, Brooklyn, Italian kid. You know, in 1979, wow. he had the short little leather jacket, the pompadour with the high uh-huh. sideburns polyester oh pants, you know, he looked like that. Wow. But he was a great drummer, and he was into, like, he was into, you know, uh, Buddy Rich, Gene mm-hmm. Cooper. He was into that kind of music. Wow. For he had a sense, he had a, 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 an appreciation of the past. Sure. And that's you what, probably that's felt what, like he struck gold. Yeah. That's the guy you're okay, looking for, right? Yeah. If you, can, if you can appreciate that stuff, that old music, then we can, yeah. we can figure out the clothes. No problem. We just need to get you back a couple of decades, you know? And so, uh-huh. <laughs> remember... Because we were wearing all 1950s clothes, and he said, "You guys dress like my old man." That's what he told us. So, so then right we, you know, we got him into it, and uh, you know, I mean, kind of the rest is history, as it were. But we, you yeah. know, we started playing in clubs. We, you know, we, and we got a great reputation. Yeah. Eventually, we did get a bass player, and okay. you know, he came over on a. We put an ad in. This kid named Pete Morgan came over. He had red hair. He looked like James Dean. He's like a kind of a James Dean type. You know, drove uh-huh. a motorcycle. Wow. You know, perfectly you want. And yeah, and he, he, we had, it was like a punk band, but we were playing yeah. rockabilly because 
I, I knew a, only a few chords. They had a punk mentality. I only sure. know a few chords on the on the guitar. Uh, rock, you know, rock. He just played a snare and a cymbal. That's all we wanted was a snare and a cymbal because we looked at those Gene Vincent albums and he just had a right. snare and a cymbal. So that's all we need. So we got the bass player and he couldn't play bass really. Yeah. He played guitar. He played a little bit of guitar, but he looked so cool. And he said, "I want to be right. in the band." So yeah. the guitar player, Michael Gene, set out. We rented an upright bass. And Pete would come over, and he would take lessons from Michael Gene. Michael Gene would show him how to play the upright bass. And so, I mean, and that's what happened with the Clash. Their wow. bass player, yeah, Paul Sutherland, they said he saw him walking down the street one day, and he looked like the guy. He looked like the guy exactly. who wanted to our band. Can you play anything? Yep. No. Well, okay, let me try to teach you to play something, because you look so cool. <laughs> heard you should the same that. stories about Paul. Yeah. Yeah. You know what so he was doing. Yeah, that's yep. how it works, you know. Somebody was yeah. working in a shop somewhere, but they just looked really good. They so. looked right. right yeah. Out and casting. yeah, and that's how it worked with Rock with Buzz and the Flyers. Oh, oh, about my genie, genie, genie. Yeah, I'm the wolf, and you don't want to come in. Oh, oh, about my genie, genie, genie. Yeah, I'm the wolf, and you don't want to come in. Well, I huff and I puff and I huff and I puff and I blow your house in. So one thing led to another. We did really well in the straight. We, you know, we played in Max of Kansas City. We did CBGBs. Uh-huh. We played all the clubs. We were really at the heart of it. People loved us. We were like the hottest Rockabilly band. At the same time, you know, Levi and the Rockcats were there. We'd met, I'd met them before I moved to uh, New York City. Okay. I mean, Kentucky, just Levi and Smutty. And so, you know, there was a budding Rockabilly scene. Yeah. But mainly when we played gigs, there'd be a Rockabilly show, and, you know, we were playing for punks. Yeah, I mean, you, you're at the you're the epicenter of like some of the like cross section of some of the biggest mutual cultural mu- movements of the last in history. You've got disco and punk and new yeah. wave all kind of intersecting right there in the heart of New York with CBGBs, yeah. but then also Studio Fifty Four and stuff. And you're like in the throes of this. Were you aware that you're in like a huge melting pot at the moment, or are you sort of just doing your thing and in retrospect, as historians turn that time into a historical moment, then it becomes yeah. clearer. Does that make sense? Yeah. It makes it makes sense, but at the time, that's just what was going on. You didn't think yeah. about it in those terms, you know. You just it, it didn't it didn't occur to you because when you're living it, it's not like you can't project 20 years into the future, sure, 30 years sure. into the future, and go like, I'm in, I'm living in one of the best times right now. There, right. you know, that there's been in this city, you know, musically, you just can't do it. It's like, yeah. you know, if you went to 57. 57 52nd Street, you know, in 1949, and grab some saxophone player, right. you know, right. yeah. you couldn't, or even John yeah. Coltrane, and you realize yeah. that, in, you know, that this is like such a, people are going to just dream yeah. about this time, you go, really? Oh, okay, excuse me, i got to go, you know? <laughs> but are you rubbing shoulders with, like, Talking Heads and Television and Blondie or, oh, yeah. or any For of sure. those people? I mean, are you seeing those people around and thinking, are you as impressed by them and what they're doing as people today still seem to be? Or were they just musicians doing a thing and you didn't really know they were just, until later? They were, just, uh, they were just bands who had gotten successful, you know, okay. and not heard of. 
but it was yeah. cool to see them. I remember the first sure. time I went to CBGB's and saw the Ramones, you know, the whole audience. I'll, I'll never forget. I was like, I don't think I'd moved to New York by that time. I'd gone to visit and stayed for a little while, and I went out and went to CBGB's and saw the Ramones and blonde, you know, Debbie Harry was in the audience. Tom Verlaine was in the audience. Oh, you know, all, oh. it was, that's just what was going on, you know, and yeah, I wasn't like, oh, my yeah. God, look, there's Debbie Harry. I just, all I remember is thinking, God, she's got such a big head. <laughs> she had, have you ever seen Debbie Harry? She's got a massive head, you know, <clears throat> really big head. I think that's why she's so photogenic, she this large head. I but anyway, you know, so, that, but you're probably right. Yeah, crazy. really broad face, huge uh-huh. face. She does, right. yeah, you're right. Yeah, but it was, wow. you know, that's what was going on at the time. And so what happened was the stray cat. Get kicked out for coming home at all. Mom and dad cursed the day you were born. Throw your clothes into a double bag. Shouting and slam the door, the home it's a drag. Who can I turn to? Where can I stay? Cats were they were like a little band from Long Island that would come in. They were called the Tomcats first, and this and that, and and you know they would play and they opened for Buzz and the Flyers. They opened for you know they would open the Rockabilly shows at Max's Kansas City upstairs, and uh, you know they were they were really good. But I didn't think much about it. They were really good. Okay. So one thing led to another. I mean, we went to, went to England a couple of times because the Rockabilly scene in England was so huge that we got promoters uh-huh. hearing about us. They said, "Well, why don't you come to England?" So we did a couple of tours in England. It was great. And then the Stray Cats went to England. Yeah, and that's kind of where they broke, you know, right? What's that? They kind of broke there, right? I mean, they, they yeah. started next to hit a big you know, there and then came back to the States, right? They were on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah. Know? I think yeah. it was Rolling Stone. All of a sudden, they were like huge, and they were, they were you know, they got the endorsement of the Rolling Stones. They got mm-hmm. the endorsement of Keith Richards. They, and it was like, bam, you know, runaway yeah. boys. They were, all of a sudden, they broke the whole rockabilly scene. Totally. You know? And it was like, I remember Man. Well. Yeah. And I was I was not mature enough and I didn't have a I didn't have a, a mentor, you know, uh-huh. to I'll admit this, this is something I've admitted over the years. I didn't have a mentor. I wasn't mature enough. I was, you know, I was still kind of wide eyed and, you know, I didn't understand sure. you know, decorum and politics and all that kind of stuff, how to be. And we were we did an interview with I forget, some British magazine, and the guy was asking me, he said, so what about the, because by then I was getting pretty resentful that people said we were like the Stray Cats, because mm. we were not like the Stray Cats for a start, and the fact that they had gotten very successful kind of like around the back, yeah. you know, and all of a sudden I was like really jealous, it really pissed me off. Yeah. Now suddenly so, you're a follower instead of doing yeah. your own thing, right? Instead yeah. of a leader, like, what do you mean, you know, so... So this guy asked me about the Stray Cats, and, I, and I, I forget what I said, but I didn't say, oh, yeah, they're great, which is all I should have said. Right. But I, did, I said something like, I don't know what I said. I wasn't, and I wasn't impressed with Runaway Boys. You know, it didn't sound rockabilly right. to me. It sounded like, I don't know what that record sounded like, but it didn't sound, because we were very purist, you know, yeah. Yeah. Flyers. We, we had a jazz influence and a Captain Beefheart influence, but 
the rockabilly stuff we played was real kind of rockabilly. It wasn't uh-huh. it didn't have a contemporary feel to it. So when I heard Runaway Boys, I I, I didn't like that record. I didn't know what that was. I thought, okay, you know, it was it was exciting, and I heard the lyrics, and it was all about being rebellious and all that. But you know, between yeah. my jealousy and all that, I kind of slagged it off. And of course, it got back to them, and you know, then we mm. became enemies. You know, of course, and not wrong. Not long after that, I because uh, you know we were good friends. I mean, Brian Jeffrey yeah. used to we used to have a lot of great conversations. You know, he would ask me all about the band, and we talked about stuff. And after that, it was like just cut that off, which I understandable. Yeah. So, so I uh, and not long after that, Bummer. I met Bernie Rhodes. Bernie Rhodes, the manager of the Clash. Yeah, the Clash. Right. Yeah. He he. We played at the Peppermint Lounge or something, and uh, Bernie Rhodes was there, and he saw the band, and he came back to me, and he said, "You know, I really like your band. Because I really like you. I don't like your band. I'm not really a rockabilly fan, but I like you. I think you have a chance to really make it." He said, "If you want, if you're interested, I'll be your manager, and you let's come to England. I'll give you a place to stay. I'll pay you a weekly really? wage, and I'll introduce you to musicians, and you can get yourself started and get yourself a record contract, and you can have all the stuff you that you're trying to get." now and get out of this rockabilly thing because it won't last. Wow. Yeah. And I was and I said, okay, and within two weeks I was on a plane to London. It's like that. Bernie yeah. Rhodes is the guy yeah. who brought you to England essentially or sold you on the idea of going to England? Yeah, Bernie Rhodes. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. That's royalty. I mean now, maybe I, again, like everything else, back then he's just a guy. But we know well, now no, because he, of the stature well, of the clash, that's kind of royalty. Back then he was. Back then he was. He was. He was. Okay. He was a, an important guy. You know, him and yeah. Him okay. Parents, so you're feeling like that them too. too. Okay. Good. Yeah. They were the architects of punk. You know. You know. Sure, of course. They, they love those two guys. So. Okay. You know, Bernie less. You know, lesser figure than Malcolm because he didn't have the style and Vivian West. Right. You know. But right. at the same time, Bernie was. Bernie was the He's man. Still a so, key figure. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to England wow. and he introduced me to. Um, you know. Uh, I, I went straight from the airport. Somebody picked me up at the airport, and they took me right to a rehearsal studio in Camden Town. And I walked into a rehearsal studio, and I met these four guys. Uh-huh. And they were playing at the subway set with Nick Goddard. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, the a second incarnation of the subway set, not the original subway set. And right. so, uh, so, and they had like a, Wednesday night at the at the Wag Club downtown called Club Left. They had this one night at this club in the West End, called, and, and it was kind of like a cabaret where they were the house band. And okay. They had a, right. a black girl singer who was like a, a chantuzzi singer, and she would get up okay. and do a set, and then I would get up and do a set of kind of rock and roll songs, and then Vic Gallard would come on, you know, and then they, uh-huh. they would do that. And eventually, one thing led to another. Vic didn't like touring. He was very difficult. And I and I told Bernie, I said, I want my own band. I don't want to just be playing with these guys and be a part of the cabaret thing. So I told the guys, I said, listen, this is what I want to do. If you're interested in that, I said, we just need to revamp this whole thing. We need to get rid of the bow ties. They were wearing bow ties and really nice clothes. They looked really smart, you know, like smart young men. I said, this uh-huh. is not what we should be doing. I had a whole idea of Joe Boxers. I said, you know, we need to be, you know, because I was in the Marlon Brando and on the waterfront and all that. Yep, yep. I said, we need to get that kind of a look. We need to work work on making it like that, make it tough. Yeah. You know, because at, at that time, you know, that at that time, by then punk had kind of died out. Punk was not mm-hmm. what it was. And all the kind of the kind of pretty boy, you know, sure. Kajagoo, you know, early 80s, that yeah. kind of yeah. soft, 
that soft pop, that electro rock thing, electro pop, uh-huh. electro pop thing was happening. I said, we yep. need to do something completely different. The closest right. thing I could think of was Dexy.
Yeah. Box yeah. the Beat came out. And that was my, you said about an interaction with David Bowie. <laughs> That's the interaction I had with David Bowie. Is our first single was number three in the charts in England. Uh-huh. Number, I think number two was Duran Duran, and number one was David Bowie. No. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I you think believe was, that? Yeah, I think it was, was it, I think it was Young Americans. I'm, I don't think it was, it could have really? been Less Dance. I'm not sure. Whatever, whatever hit he had in been, yeah. That would have been like China Girl, Modern Love, Let's Dance. It was probably uh, Let's Dance. Probably okay. was. Yeah. 83, early 83, April 83. Yeah. And so, you know, that's how that happened. And and then, you know, we it was a kiss of death really for us because we, uh, you know, where do you go from there? You know, well, where do you, do you go from there? Uh, well, that's an interesting question that you posed because uh, some people – some bands build off that, but you guys could only, why did you only manage like one album? Now I, I, I understand there's a second album. I can't find proof that skin and bone actually exists anywhere. I can't Google image the cover. I can't, I don't see it on the Joe boxers website. Yeah. I'm not familiar Sitting with in a vault. even on it. Sitting is, what Sony records has it in a vault somewhere. RCA had it for a long time. BMG had it for a long time. Now I think it's Sony mm-hmm. music owns that catalog and, it's sitting in a vault somewhere, you know. I don't know if it ever be released. It was never released. I mean, it was never released. And same no. goes for your solo album, um, yeah. Square Business. I that's another one. I, there's a solo album out there. I can't find nah. anything on YouTube. That, I can't Google image it. Nothing. Yeah, that never happened. I don't know where that came from. I don't know how that story got started. Really? I that's actually, on your Wikipedia page. There's a single called Mastermind. And I'm like, really? There's more Dick Wayne out there, and I can't find anything. Oh yeah, yeah, Mastermind. That was a single. There was, but there was really? never an album for a business. I started to write an album, oh. and I had a song called I had a song called Mastermind. I had a song called No Such Love. I was I wrote a lot of songs, and I had a I had a collection of songs, and it was going to be an album called Square Business. I think on Polydor, and the okay. single they released a single Mastermind. It went nowhere. It went nowhere, and they dropped me. I, all I had was a singles deal. They just gave me a singles uh, deal, but then I the see. single didn't the single didn't go anywhere, so they just dropped me. And, yeah. you know, that was the beginning of the end of it. You know, I just kind of, I lost yeah. heart. I lost, and the Joe Boxers were like, before we actually broke up, um, you know, we got offers from, you know, small labels, you know, once we were off of RCA and we had to, uh-huh. we were going to sign with, uh, we were going to sign with um, CBS Records. And that fell through because, you know, we were, we were, you know, we were young and stupid, you know, just like so many right. bands. We just did a lot, we made a lot of mistakes and we had a terrible manager who didn't, who knew nothing about business, and so the you manager know, I, is not Bernie Rose at this point, I guess. Bernie oh no, right no, Bernie. Yeah. Okay. Once we became successful, Bernie just walked away. He wasn't interested because he didn't like the direction we went. He wasn't mm-hmm. interested in that. And so we got this guy who was a young guy who was a, a friend of someone who thought he could be our manager, and he just mm-hmm. made so many mistakes. And we were stupid because we just let him deal with it, you know, because all yeah. we were interested, all I was interested in, were was the music. And sure. the image and, and the girls and drinking yeah. and having a good time. Of course. So, That's what every you know, young guy so, gets in rock music for. Exactly. And so yeah. you deal with that and just make sure I get a check on a frequent, uh-huh. you know, frequent check so I, I sure. can afford to have a good time. And so yeah. eventually it all fell apart and the record company dropped us. And like I say, these small labels would come and offer us things. And we were like, well, I didn't want to do it. I, you know, once being on RCA and having all that backing and all that, I thought, I don't. My, I didn't. I, I lost my excitement for it 
really so much that I I, I knew if we, if we signed with a small label, we were going to have to do all this stuff that I wasn't prepared to do. My heart yeah. wasn't in it anymore. And I, I remember telling the guitar player, Rob, Rob Marsh, I told him, I said, I told him, I said that. I said, my heart's not in it anymore, yeah. man. Yeah. And he was upset, and they were wow. all upset with me. But I said, I got to walk away. And I walked away. I didn't want to do it. So yeah. here's the deal. I mean, a lot of the people that I've talked to for the podcast are are in a similar situation. They put out one album, but in their case, it didn't have an, as much success as even like Gangbusters had for you. So I find yeah. it interesting that you chose to walk away when, well, I don't know. Was there label in? Was there an, an anticipation around a second album? You you when you're recording it, not knowing that it's going to be locked away somewhere forever are you feeling still feeling just as energized and motivated or are you already starting to like look i had my moment and i'm kind of just not interested anymore well you know it's tough because i I remember distinctly recording that second album in berlin with chris kimsey the producer you know who produced the rolling stones you know Uh wow and we i remember very well listening to you know, listening to some of the tracks, you know, had rough mixes and things and just not being happy with it. Yeah. I love the songs. I love the songs and I still love the songs, but the production, it just didn't have, huh. it didn't have the excitement. It didn't have the freshness. It didn't have, it just didn't sound very good, you know, in really? comparison to what, it didn't sound like, I mean, just got lucky. I don't have to tell you, John, you know, that comes on the radio, man. It just like, oh. it lights up the room. Still, it's like, a it's like a chandelier. It's a chandelier lights up the room. Yeah. Yep. This, the second album, it just didn't have that. Plus, we fell into that trap, which so many bands did and probably still do, where, you know, you, you do your first album, and your first album is, you know, it's so exciting mm-hmm. to do the first album. Yeah. Then you're touring, you're doing all this stuff, and you're young and you're stupid, and you get full of yourself. So by the yeah. time, you know, unless you've written two or three albums before this, before you've had success, and you've got these albums ready, and right, these songs, right. and this, you know, the second one just kind of becomes like us. We were under the under the pressure of the record company, write another hit, which is yeah. the kiss of death right there. Right. So right. we wrote a song called "Is This Really the First Time?" On the cover for that. Boxer beef because I have that. I think it's I think it's on the essential boxer beef because it's okay. really the first time you've been in love, and it's yeah. just I hear that song now I can't listen to that song. It's just like let's try let's write a song like just got lucky but not just got lucky yeah. and it just right. and it sounds like that without the without the the you know without the the brilliance of, of just got lucky so yeah and I heard that even at the time 
I'll never forget it. Sometimes I thought, this is kind of like, and the record company loved it. Oh, yeah, this is just like, this is kind of like, this one, like, this one will work, this one will work. Mm-hmm. Nothing. You know, it came out. Really? Nobody cared. Nobody cared. It, it was over. It was over. We changed our image. We got a little bit smarter. Yeah. We started getting suits made. And, you know, yeah. we were one of those kind of bands that just, you know, the time we had was the time we had. I don't think it was yeah. meant to last. It was not I meant to last. That. Yeah. Do you, do you and think I, any I of went this? off and tried to do a solo thing, you know, yeah. that, and that was the square business thing. And that wasn't meant to be either because I wasn't ready to do it. I wasn't right. ready. I wasn't emotionally. I was not ready to do that. And, and my heart, like I say, my heart was huh. not in it anymore. And that's, that was the beginning of me becoming an actor. Yeah. Okay. So that, um, so w- one last question about Joe Boxer era anyway, do you think, I mean, we talked about the fashion sense, and the image and yeah. the style. Do you think ultimately that kind of hurt you in the end? I mean, the 80s were big for that kind of thing. A lot of bands yeah. had some kind of a style. It's A lot of that's over substance, style over substance back then. Yeah. But um, I wonder if at the time people associated you with a particular look and a moment. You know, we've talked about big country via email and how you guys yeah. played with big country. And- Between a father and a son Between the city and the world Before the teacher and the test Before the journey and the rest A shining eye will never cry A beating heart will never die A house of fire holds no shame by the second album, third album, it's not that unique anymore, and people are yeah. kind of moving away. I'm wondering, if, do you think there's any of that happening to Joe Boxers right then, or is it just a song issue? Songs aren't Well, I think it was, you know, it was all of it. It was all of those yeah. things combined. The image was so strong, you yeah. know, that, you know, and, and if, you're, if you're wearing those clothes, if you're uh-huh. wearing those clothes, you're wearing those clothes quite a while before everybody starts to see you wearing those clothes. True, true. You know? Yeah. So yeah. by the time everybody knows about you wearing them and a lot of kids are starting to dress like that, you're ready to wear something else. Yeah, you know? true. Good point. Very good point. Yeah. Yep, yep. And that's what happened. So, and that's a good, the Dexies are a perfect example of that. Yep, Dexies. Yep. And I learned that from them because when I first saw Dexies, you know, like I said, they were doing the kind of the, the longshoreman thing. By the time uh-huh. I saw them, they were, I think, come on, Eileen, they were in the dungarees. And by, yeah. the, and, and by the next record, they were wearing Brooks Brothers. <laughs> Seriously. They were like right. button-down yeah. shirts, really right. smart young men. It was like, and they kept changing images. Every record, they changed their image. And I, yeah. I, I was, at the time, I was really naive enough to think that, you know, we were going to keep dressing that way, mm-hmm. but Joe Boxers were. And I was really disappointed when we did the Top of the Pops 
his music show on the BBC. We, you know, we did a Top of the Pop sure, episode with Gexy, and he showed up, and they were dressed, like, really conservatively. And I was expecting, <laughs> and they were dressed conservatively for the rehearsal. When we oh, saw wow. them around for the rehearsal in the daytime, and they were uh-huh. going, come on, Eileen, for the show. And that night, when we did, when they actually taped it, he put on the Dungarees. And I was oh, like, man. what the hell? This, this is like this is all just an image for you. Right? It's just yeah. an image. They don't really yeah. mean it. But see, yeah. that's the thing. Joe Boxers meant it. And so right. did that makes sense. We wore those clothes every day. We yeah. just didn't get dressed up for the band. It wasn't a costume we wore to be in the band. We wore it every day. Yeah, so. interesting. That makes sense. Okay, so you transitioned to acting. Now, let me so let me ask you this. It sounds like you've, um, you know, a lot of people that I've talked to, again, their end of their music career is not necessarily a choice that they make. It's one that they're forced to make because people just aren't as interested anymore, you know? Right. And so they have right. to move on. It sounds like, though, that you still have some semblance of a choice in the matter. You made a decision, this just isn't really for me anymore, uh, whether that was motivated by business not going your way or sales decreasing or creative dissatisfaction, yeah. you're fine kind of moving along. So if that's the case, then how does acting become a thing? Well, because I, I went back. I really did a lot of soul searching around that time in my life. And I went back and I and I thought about, I had a friend who was an actor. He was a roadie for Joe Boxers. He was an actor. And and he used to talk about it, tell me about drama school and this and that. Because I was always interested in, you know, like I said, um, you know, the whole image thing and on the waterfront, mm-hmm. hence Marlon Brando. And I, and Marlon Brando was Marlon Brando was my inspiration for so many things. Because I remember, really? I remember very clearly, I saw, I just like the Alice Cooper thing under the covers, you know, listen to Alice yeah. Cooper. I saw Marlon. I saw the Wild One on TV when I was about ten, nine or ten years old. Uh-huh. On Saturday afternoon, I saw the Wild One, and that changed my life. That changed wow. my life. That made me. That was the first time I saw, like with the Bebop and Lula and all of it. Like I say, those weren't pictures. Those were those old records. It was a sound that you remembered. But I saw the Wild One, and I saw the way he behaved mm-hmm. and his gang, and it was the first time I'd seen people behave in any different way than what I was familiar with in sure. my family and my neighborhood sure. in a small town. Yeah. I had no idea that you could go around and break the rules and, you know, and, you know, I may have had a couple of friends and guys in school who broke rules and got in trouble, but I didn't want to be like those guys. Yeah. I thought they were fools, you know, they, they were stupid. Right. This was the first time I saw people, adults breaking the rules and I thought they were cool. You know, yeah. they were yeah. cool, and I wanted, and I, I wanted to be like that. So that image stuck with me for many years. And so by the time, you know, the music thing was over, and like I said, my heart wasn't in it, and I was looking for what else I was going to do. And I talked to this actor friend of mine, who's the roadie, and I asked if I was interested in drama school because I remembered that movie, and I thought, well, maybe I could do that because I knew yeah. that I, I had a sense of, you know, show business. I wanted to, and I knew that I got a good response from people when I got on the stage. So I thought I was I was tired of worrying about other guys, other people like worrying that they had on the right clothes and worrying yeah. worrying that they were going to show up late. And I said, this is I just got to make it about me now. And, you know, I right. just wanted to do something by myself. And so he said, yeah. And so I he said he went to drama school. I asked him. I said, what do they teach you in drama school? He said they taught me how to stand still. <laughs> I I teach oh, acting God. now. 
That's, yeah. that's my job. I, I teach acting, and I tell my students that all the time. That's one of my stories. I said, when I first wanted to go to drama school, I asked a friend what they taught me, what they taught you, and he said that. They teach you how to stand still. I thought he was kidding, and he was, he was serious, and it was yeah. something that I eventually learned was true. You have to learn how to stand still. You know, that's interesting. Got, I never would have thought to summarize it that way, but you're probably yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, and as a young, excited person, you have, you know, your tendency is to move around a lot. So anyway, I looked up, I did some research and saw, you know, about Marlon Brando and James Dean uh-huh. and all those guys in the 50s and, you know, how they learned to be actors and how they studied, and, and that led me to Lee Strasberg and method yeah. acting. Wow. And from there, I did some research in London, and there was, at, at the time, there was a uh, Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute in London. Uh-huh. So... I went down there and I applied and uh, and I paid my money and I enrolled and uh, wow and I started doing it and it was very odd I I didn't quite understand what they were doing the things that they were doing these relaxation exercises and sensory work and all this kind of stuff and I thought it was weird yeah. but I, I I thought this is this is interesting I I kind of got it I kind of mm-hmm. started getting it so. One thing led to another, and I, I did a scene for Anna Strasberg, Lee Strasberg's wife. It's uh-huh. interesting because Strasberg himself died in 1982. Yeah. But, uh, so I never actually got to study with him. I have friends now who, who are much older than me who studied with Lee. But anyway, so I knew his wife, and his wife came, and she saw me do a scene. I did a scene for her, and she offered me a scholarship. And so I went there for like three really? years. studied for like three wow. years there. Yeah, really, really, really got a, really got a, a grip of that technique. And yeah. I wanted to continue studying, and she kicked me out. She goes, you need to go out and get a job as an actor. You're ready to go. Right. And that's what I did. And I, went out, I got an agent, and I, got, really? you know, I started working on, I think I worked, I worked in a couple of movies, small parts in a movie, some TV shows, yeah. I got commercials, started doing some voiceover work. Um, right. I started working as an actor, and one thing led to another, and I ended up in a show called Five Guys Named Mo. If you look yep. at my website, you see all that. You know, I saw it. Oh, yeah. Come down and pick me jack. There's Big Mo. Little bitty Mo. Four-eyed Mo. No Mo. Look at brother. Look at brother. And that ran yeah, for five years well. in the West End. Yeah, five years wow. in the West End. And uh, once then it became like, I guess it's time to go back to the States, you know. Uh-huh. I never lived in Los Angeles, and so I came back here in 1995. And, uh, you know, bought a car, got an apartment, and started working here as an actor. And, you know, over time, I got married, started raising a family, and, you know, sure. and it, was very, it was very difficult, as everybody knows. It's very, very difficult to make a living as an actor. Yeah. So it was hard for me to make a living. I did wardrobe styling, you know, on the side for many years for, uh, okay. you know, for TV commercials. It kept me going, always auditioning, booking jobs here and there. And eventually, a friend of mine was, was teaching acting, and he, uh, he said, he said, why don't you come to my class and show them some of that method stuff? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I said, okay. So I went into his class, and I would go in, and I would show the kids, 
the, the relax, relaxation techniques and the sensory work, and then I would sit in and, you know, study with this guy. And eventually uh-huh. I began to realize the way he taught, I, I didn't agree with a lot of the way the things he was saying to the students, the way he was teaching them. He was good, but I just I had my own ideas. Yeah, so from yeah. There, I went out and I started, I tr- tried to start my own class, and I started my own class, but it was really hard, again, to get young people to commit and pay you the money every month. Yeah, right. Yeah. So then I started looking for employment. So I got a job uh, subbing at the Strasbourg Institute here in Los Angeles, seeing how I studied there in, in, uh, in London. So they hired uh-huh. me. And so I was there off and on some, since 2008, and then I applied to the New York Film Academy. I became a member of the Actors Studio. Oh, which good. Was, which was very fortunate because, you know, from there I – you know, I got to meet, and I actually know Martin Landau very well. He could teach oh, cool. my work. You okay. know, so I, I really got myself in very good hands, you know, at the actor's studio. I became a member, which is a very, you good. know, very difficult thing to do. And if you become a member of the actor's studio, it's very prestigious, and I'm very proud of that. So Good for you, and, man. Yeah, and so now I teach, you know, I teach like 10 classes a week, and uh, I teach at the Strasbourg Institute. I have my own class on Monday okay. mornings and Wednesday mornings. Uh, and uh, I teach at the New York Film Academy as well over there. Wow. And I've got a class okay. there. And, that's great. You know, is that fulfilling? I, I mean, do you feel like where you started and where you're where you're at now that you're happy? You probably wouldn't say otherwise because you don't want to disparage your job or your students. But are you do you feel pretty satisfied with what you've accomplished along the way and where it put you? Yes, I do. I feel very satisfied with it. I feel Good. like this is where I should be. I feel very Good. at home. I feel very like what when I when I'm teaching, it's it's interesting, John. It's almost like I get the same feeling in in me. It satisfies uh-huh. my soul in the same way it would it used to do used to be when I would get up on stage and be in a band. Good. There's a Good. there's a performance aspect to it. There's a sharing yeah. of joy. Sure. There's a there's a there's a I don't Connection, know, making connections. That's what I think of it. Making I'm connections. Not an actor, but yeah, you want to connect. You want to share a piece of you and make it and feel like it's connecting with someone. Exactly, know? and really yeah. giving up yourself. Really, that, yeah. and I think that's that's why I that's why I had the success I had in the music and music and being on stage and singing because I I gave of myself. I really yeah. gave of myself. I, I, right. I, I, I that was I was completely free. I, I, you know, I didn't feel like yeah. I was holding anything back, and people, yeah. people relate to that. They, you know, I agree. They, even if they can't put it into words. They, they recognize that, and it touches them. It moves yeah. them, and that's I what agree. I see, and that's, and that's, and that's, that's what I give. Yeah. And when I, and I get such satisfaction when I give that to the, to my students, and I see them get up, and I guide them, and I give them suggestions and ideas on working on a scene, and and I ask them questions, and I hear what they're yeah. hiding, and I try to get them to not hide that. I say, let us see that. We want to see yeah. that side of you. We want to see you be vulnerable. We want to see you take a risk. We want to see you do this, do that. And once they right. start doing it, and I see them get moved, and it moves me, yeah. and the way they are so appreciative, and the way they love the class, and they just, yeah. and, they, and I told them, I tell them, I say, you know, it's, you're learning how to act, and it's something that you hopefully will make a living at, and it's a craft, and it's an art. But ultimately, this this kind of craft, learning how to do this, helps you in your everyday life. It helps sure, you take control of your life, be more yeah. be more assertive in your life, know who yeah. you are, know who yeah. you are. 
Yeah. So, well, and judging by everything that I was reading off your website, I mean, you're also into photography. You're also into poetry. So it's clear yeah. that you just you can't stop yourself from being creative in some right. form or another. That I right. You probably would be the worst person to ever have it, like a regular desk job, because it, it seems like it's a burning need within you to, like I said, connect with other people through creative means. That's yeah. just who you are, and you've had to you've had to make a way or make a living or whatever, forge a path for yourself to do that pretty much your whole life, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I've done. That's what I've done. Okay. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very. Uh, yeah, I, I'm an artist. That's what yeah, I you are. That's realize. it. That's it. Yeah, when I was day. younger, I didn't think up in those terms. I thought I'm a rock and roll star. I'm a this, yeah. I'm a that, you know. But I, and I realized ultimately I am an artist, and it 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 shows no yeah. matter what I do, it comes out, and I and I I embrace that now. You know, at this yeah. age, you know, I can I can I've lived long enough now. I can look back and go and have a body of work and put it all together and say, well, I guess I am. Yeah, you know? yeah, and you can you know, pay your bills that. doing it. Not everybody can do that. Yeah, so you know what I mean? Yeah, That's yeah. huge. Okay. Yeah, barely. So, barely, but I can do it. Yeah, right. Well, I know. I know that feeling well, too. But, um, okay, so there's a couple of questions I want to ask you that I ask pretty much everyone that I talk to. Okay. Number one, and, and I'm really curious what your answers are going to be, because you're in the, like, as I've said, you're, you were in the epicenter of some of my favorite periods of music, whether that be the late 70s in New York or the early 80s in London. So when you look back on your career, and it doesn't have to be a music memory, it can be any memory at all, but what is the most, like, prominent, delicious, I can't, when you're sitting at your desk in your office at school before class, and you sit and you ponder about your life. And you're just like, I can't believe that happened to me. What is that memory? Is it meeting someone? Is it a performance that went well? Is it a what? What? What could it be? Is it the fact that you moved somewhere and you you made it work, or you transitioned into acting? Do you have a memory that sticks out above and beyond all the rest? Uh, I have a couple of them actually. Okay. The very first one that came to mind is. Is um, as a kid, you know, listening to the, listening to music, listening to the radio, hearing songs, hearing people sing, and all that. I I always wanted to hear my own voice on the radio. I always wanted Absolutely. to hear myself, yeah. you know, sing a song on the radio, have a song on the radio. And I never, I'll never forget when I was in London and I lived in this little apartment in Islington, and I would go to this little sweet shop around the corner every morning and get a newspaper and a pack of cigarettes and. Uh-huh. Uh, all all the little news agents in London, all are, they used to be, I don't know if they are now, they're all run by Indian people, you know, from India. Sure. And, uh, you know, I mean, traditional people, too. The women always have on saris, very colored, yeah. you know. I remember. Yeah. And I, I would go into this uh, little sweet shop, and I would get my paper and my cigarettes. And one morning, I mean, we had recorded our album. We knew they were going to release Boxer Beat as the first single. And... uh so we were, it was all pending. We were waiting. We'd been on, I think we were on the cover of Enemy Magazine, you know, newspaper, you know, uh-huh. so we were, we were starting to break and we felt it. And I went into that sweet shop and I'll never forget they had the BBC on the radio and, you know, say, man, you heard about that boxer style. And <laughs> our record came on the radio. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And I, was, I, I, I got, I have goosebumps on my, on my arm right now from telling you that because I, yeah, it's like that sense memory. That sense yeah. memory of going back to that moment of how that felt was 
it was something that you know that I had wanted my my entire life since yeah. I was a kid. I dreamt I've dreamt of, of hearing myself on the radio. You never know how it's going to happen, and that's how it happened in that little sweet shop right there yeah. and, and, and yeah. at that moment. And I, and I said to the woman, I said to the woman, oh, that's my record, that's my record, that's me. And she was like, oh, very good, very good, very good, very good. <laughs> she just smiled, she, you know, she's like, who's this crazy person? Sure, she doesn't even so really excited. know what you're saying. Oh, no. my gosh, that's great. Yeah, that that's great. Okay, so then do you have a regret? Is there a, is there, you know, one of those sliding doors or butterfly effect moments where something happened that you look back now and it changed the course or it just doesn't, you haven't received closure on it. Do you have any regrets about any part of the part of your journey? Yeah. I wish I hadn't just slagged off the stray cats like I did. Oh, interesting. Really? Yeah. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I would have been much more mature, you know, and, and, Uh and, and more had, had a bigger heart. Been yeah. less selfish. Been less selfish. I was a very, it was a very selfish thing to do, you know. And it wasn't necessary. I could have felt that way and not expressed it publicly, you know. And I, I wish I yeah. would, because I've seen Brian Setzer, you know, from time to time, and you know, and, uh, you know. Are you guys cool now, or is there still weird? No, no, not really. No. He kind of acts like he doesn't know who I am, and yeah. I mean, I haven't seen him for years and years. I mean, I, the last time I saw him was Joe Boxers, you know. I was in Joe okay. Boxers, and he was in London. I saw him and. You know, it was a very cool, you know, re, you know, we greeted each other very coolly because I knew he, uh-huh. you know, and, and you know, and it was like, and just generally, I slagged off um, Bananarama one time too. You know, oh, it was just one of those yeah. things that I was done. And I remember, you know, with Joe Boxers, we we had big mouths. You know, we had big mouths, and we said uh-huh. a lot of stuff that was really stupid and hurtful because we thought it was part of the image and we thought it was cute and, and made for uh-huh. great press. It made for great press. Yeah, you know, yeah. people loved interviews because they would be like, "What are they going to say this time? Right, who are they right. going to piss off this time?" Interesting. And we would never let them down. And on one time, we said something about because Bananarama, <laughs> you know, Bananarama, and at the time, who took him seriously? Who knew the who right. knew they were going to be so successful? And when right. they first came out, and they were just flouncing around in these silly clothes, these three uh-huh. girls, and then no instruments, just flouncing around it meant yeah. nothing and somebody asked me what we what we thought of Bananarama and I said they danced like a bunch of elephants or something I said something really oh stupid. no way really I'll never forget yeah I'll never forget I was in a club in the West End and uh Siobhan the one who eventually yeah. married Dave Stewart she came I was up gonna to say me. your former bandmates bandmate Boss. right didn't Chris exactly. Bostock go on to play yeah. with Dave Stewart who went on to marry yeah. Siobhan Fahey yeah exactly crazy. yeah spiritual yeah. cowboy she yeah. came up to me very seriously, and she said, Dick, she goes, why did you say that? Why did you say that? You know, uh-huh. she really was, she was genuinely hurt because yeah. everybody loved Joe Boxers, man, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. As far as I could tell, everybody, you know, we were you really a like hot man. Yeah. Yeah, and so, and she said, why did you say that? And and, and I, I'll never forget to stand there with my tongue in my mouth and my feet in my shoes, and I just felt uh-huh. so stupid. I, I had yeah. nothing I said, I'm, I, I, I don't even think it's, I said, I'm sorry. I think I probably lied and said something. I was probably drunk. I probably said something like, oh, they misquoted us. We didn't say that. Or, oh, I right, right. did something stupid like that. Oh, no, man. I probably said something else stupid, you know? Yeah. But, oh, that's too bad. You know, so that was a, those are regrets. Both of my regrets are just from something I said. Yeah, I know what you mean. I have those too. I just realized I completely forgot to ask you about the 40-year-old virgin. 
did that how did that come about was that did that change your fortunes at all did it what's been the after effect of that did it do anything other than just remind people what a great song that was well, the main thing it did is I, I got a check for thirty thousand dollars. That That's what I wanted to know. Yes, <laughs> yeah. good, good, was, good. Yeah, that was the main thing. But it, was only, it would have been fifteen, but it was thirty because it was also in a Lindsay Lohan movie called Just My Luck. Yeah, I never saw that one. I missed. Yeah, that yeah, I wouldn't bother. I wouldn't bother. Okay. But the good thing about it being in that movie, they played it in the opening credits. Oh, so good. Okay. The movie. Yes. So, yeah. Um, well, what happened? Mainly, what happened was I had no idea because that all went through the publishers. I, I had no idea that was even happening. I got really? an email or a, I got a phone call from my sister saying, "I just saw a movie called Forty Year Old Virgin, and your song is in it." And I was like, "No really? way!" Was, yeah. And I was like, "I had no idea." So I went to see it, and I heard my song. I made a couple of calls, and they said, "Yeah." And you know, and it took I don't know how many really? six months. So no, what I would have thought because Jed Apatow. And Adam Sandler and those guys make very personal movies. It may not seem like it in Sandler's case, but I know that they are very conscientious of their soundtracks because yeah. they handpick a lot of that stuff purposely yeah. because it's stuff that meant to them something that I'm growing up. So I would have thought Judd Apatow would have made sure to have make it, made himself known to you or gotten connected up with you somehow, but it, he, I guess it just worked through the business people and you just yeah, found out about it like everyone else. Yeah, they made the they made the choices of songs. They sat, probably sat down and listed a bunch of eighty songs and made yeah. the choices and contacted the publishers and their music supervisors and and just went like got permission from the publishers and you know and that's where it went. Wow. I, you know, okay. it was great. It was great. It was very yeah. exciting having in this having having in a movie. It was. I've been no waiting. Kidding. I've been waiting for it to happen again all these years. Yeah, no kidding. Well, oh, it's the greatest. In fact, I um, I found a link just last week. I, Someone probably posted it on Facebook. This site called Pop Matters. Maybe you know this. Listed no. the top 100 alternative songs of the 80s, and just got lucky was number 98. Oh really? So yeah. So you know, it still lives on. And I'm I'm of the opinion that it's 40 year old virgin that reinserts that song back into consciousness, like it is now. I mean, it, it's a great song, but it sort of reminded everybody what a great song it was. And it's still yeah. sort of now top of mind, and that's why it makes lists like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And it plays Good. all the time. I'm always getting, you know, people tell me, "Oh, I heard just got lucky in the 7-Eleven today," or "I heard just got lucky." Oh, in... nice. I to... It's so funny when I I did an episode of CSI. I think uh-huh. it was the very first episode of CSI I did in 2007, maybe 2008. I forget what year it was. Okay. So no, actually, 2000. God, 2005, maybe. I don't know. Long time ago. And we shot it in Vegas. I went to Las Vegas, and when I got, I, I got, I was checking into the hotel. I was standing there checking in the hotel, and it was playing, you know, over the really over the speakers in the in the hotel. No way. Yeah, I thought, well, there you go. There you go. So still yeah. I still get checks on a regular basis, and good for you. Know, you. Those things will always live, you know. But I have yeah. a, I have a very quick story to tell you that I've met to tell you Please before. Do. You asked me something about, you said something about us, uh, big country and all that. Yeah. And I, I didn't really know Stuart. I had I had breakfast at the table next to him one time when we were somewhere in Manchester, and we were both playing in, in the city that night, staying at the same hotel. Okay. And I, I said, I, we spoke and said, how you doing? like your man. And, that, and that's about the only contact I had with him personally. But, you know, even that, I, you know, he was just of that time. So when uh-huh. I did hear that he committed suicide, it was very upsetting 
You know, I thought, wow, you know, how much pain would he have been yep. in to have to do that? It was really sad. But yep. that also, and you said, and you said about some some stories, big country stories. I don't have a big country story. I have a Kajigugu story. Oh, okay. I gotta just say, I'm wearing a Kajigugu T-shirt while we talk. <laughs> and I know that sounds really strange. My brother gave it to me as kind of a gag gift. And so yeah. there is a picture of Lamal's face on my chest right now as we speak. So tell me That's your really Kajagugu soundtrack or uh, well, story. Well, you know, the, the, the fact that Joe Boxers, you know, we had this kind of, it was a manufactured guy. Yeah, I, I was never a tough guy. I was never somebody uh-huh. around getting tight. You know, we got in a few fights. We got in a fight. We got in a couple of good fights, actually. But, sure. you know, I was never one around picking fights. The ending we had of being tough guys and all that kind of stuff, it was, it was manufactured. It was all for fun, you know? Sure. Sure. But anyway, what we promoted that, you know, big mouths, wise guys, the whole thing. So I'll never forget one time, Kajigugu were very popular. And we were, you know, we were the anti-Kajigugu band, anti-pretty uh-huh. anti- boy, puffy hair, makeup sure. band. And I'll never forget one night I was walking down... I was in Camden, and I was going walking past the Roundhouse. I don't even know if it's still there. It was a very uh-huh. famous, you know, the Roundhouse. I've heard of it. I've walking, heard of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm walking past the Roundhouse. I'm going someplace there in Camden, and I look up. I'm by myself wearing my Joe Boxer's gear, and I look, and I see these people coming towards me. And the closer they get, I realize, and we had, we had talked about slagging, flagging people off. We had slagged uh-huh. off Kajigugu a lot. We had said a lot of bad things about Kajigugu. <laughs> And so, and I, I never regretted that. I never regretted uh-huh. anything about that catch you. Okay, okay. Walking down the street, and, I, and as I get closer to them, I realize it's three guys from Kajigugu. It's, it's like, I think it was Lamal or, you know, Nick Banks. Yeah, Lamal, Nick Banks, and I don't remember yeah. the other guy's name. Okay. Nick Banks with the, with the braids and the beads in yep. his hair and all yep. that. Yeah. It was three guys from Kajigugu. And, and, and as the closer they got, and I realized it was them, I thought, oh, my God. I'm going to get beat up by Kajigugu. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Did you say anything? That. Did anything happen? No, I just kept my head down. I just kept walking. Oh, I just put my head here down comes just the back. band that you've been flagging off right in front of you. At night, on a, on a, on a, you know, at night, three of them, one of me, and there they are, you know. No so, way. Like, <laughs> Nick Bags, I could just see he would just whip his hair around and he'd just start slapping you with the little, with the little beads. Yeah, how bad could it have been? Yeah, right. The fact there were three of them made me think, you know, if they had a mind to, because you never know. I didn't know Kajigugu, and I'll and I'll tell you something. It's like it's like what's his name? Um, Pete Burns. You know, Pete Burns. Yes, from Dead or Alive. Yeah. Pete Burns. He dressed like a woman and he walked around like a girl, but he'd kick your fucking ass. <laughs> Seriously, you didn't fuck with you didn't fuck with Pete Burns. He'd kick your fucking ass. He was from Liverpool for a start, you know. And Liverpool, that's some tough son of bitches come out of Liverpool. So yeah. I didn't know. I thought maybe they're from Liverpool. Maybe a casual from oh, Liverpool. Come on, this is gold. This is gold, Dick. Thank you. This is a huge honor. I've had a fascination with you for many years. I love the music you put out there. Uh, you're a good man. I'm so happy that you have a job and a career and a and you're going in a direction that makes you satisfied and happy too you're a good man thank you for doing this man. oh my pleasure john thanks for asking all right there you have it dig wayne i really love that guy and is there anything better than just shooting the breeze with people about music and talking about what moves you and what you love not to me there isn't i loved it one of the things we didn't get around to talking about 
was that in 2007, he put out a solo album called Shack Rouser, a more really good, strong rockabilly. I wanted to play a little bit of that, so that's what you're listening to here over this outro. Back to business. Find us on Facebook at The Hustle Podcast. Keep in touch with us there. Like the page. We can stay in contact that way. Or you can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. I'll answer any question you have. I'll try and track down maybe an artist that you'd like me to talk to. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. Find us on iTunes. Please subscribe to this podcast. If you like stories from musicians that touch all different genres and who maybe you grew up with or maybe you don't even know about, but you like to discover new music, well, old music, truthfully, but new to you, find us on iTunes, subscribe, and write us a review. It means a great deal. I cannot stress that enough. And find us on YouTube. We have a YouTube playlist. Search for The Hustle Podcast Playlist and subscribe to the playlist because every time we have a new guest on I add new videos to that playlist that maybe it's an interview maybe it's the songs that you love maybe it's them live maybe it's just some cool old retro clips of something or other stay in touch with us however you want huge thanks to Jan Makevich Jan the man for producing this and everything else we're so grateful for him we'll talk to you all next week we'll polish up my-